0: well we 're picking up now proverbs twenty four and when we looked at Proverbs seventeen, I discussed the issue with you about why the proverbs appear to be just a, a fairly random bunch of nuggets of wisdom that are just all strung together, and I suggested various uh, possibilities of understanding the proverbs in a different way, and one of them, which I uh, was obviously my my favorite, is that Although Solomon was inspired to write this, and it is all true as far as it goes, there is a subtext to Proverbs, and it is that Solomon wrote this having been given wisdom by God at the start of his reign. And yet when he became king, he actually had a lot of potential opposition. His father had had a difficult life and had got a lot of enemies, a lot of people who had um, contested his, his rulership. The country had been in civil war for at least 10 years before Solomon became king, and Solomon's throne, as it were, was a bit shaky. And so many of these proverbs, if not every single one of them, if we knew the actual background of everything that was going on in Solomon's life and everything that had gone on in David's life, many of these proverbs are full of allusion to incidents in the life of David, and particularly to the people that had opposed David. And what Solomon's doing, I think, is using God's truth to have a sideways swipe at anyone who was a potential enemy. I spoke about how we keep on reading about the fool in Proverbs, and this is the same word, Nabal, or Nabal, as uh, Anglo-Saxons would would have it. Um, Nabal was dead, but he probably had a group of people, maybe his family, supporters, who were behind him. And There's a lot of indirect criticism of Absalom, who was dead, but um, had been a potential contender for the throne, as opposed to Solomon. And so he's using God's truth to actually justify himself. And in that, in outlined terms, I think we have a great uh, lesson to ourselves. We who quite rightly say that God, by his grace, has given us the truth. We can so easily use that in order to just simply justify ourselves rather than accepting all this truth and living by it for its own sake so let 's start off then in verse two he talks about evil people who you shouldn 't verse one desire to be with you shouldn 't support them because their heart studies destruction and their lips talk of mischief. Well, how does that relate to david well that same Hebrew word, translated mischief, <clears throat> occurs twice in Psalm 7, when we, David laments all the mischief that was done to him, Psalm 7, verses 14 and 16. What's Psalm 7 about? Well, the title and verse 1 states specifically, this is David's psalm about the words and plans of Cush, one of his enemies. And so when we we read here about people who whose lips talk of mischief to those at the time ah yeah this is Cush who uh, I suggest had his group of people who were still supportive of him and were therefore against Solomon and he's really saying anyone who was against my father and therefore is against me are condemned by God verse 3 through wisdom a house is builded and established remember that a house doesn't mean bricks and mortar It really, in biblical terms, refers to a family. And, of course, God had said a lot about the establishment, same word, of David's house or family. And, of course, God's plan was to do that through Solomon's line. And David had a number of sons, but it was to go through Solomon. And so Solomon is saying, ah, but it's by wisdom that a family, a rulership, a dynasty is established. But the whole point of the promises to David about the establishment of his kingdom through and his dynasty if you like through solomon were that it was pure grace you know remember how david falls to the ground and says oh thank you this is just pure grace i wanted to build you a house and you have taken the initiative uh, and so you're going to build me a house this is grace but as solomon says no no the house is established by wisdom whenever solomon talks about wisdom or the wise man he's talking about himself because he was renowned for his wisdom so you can see what's happening he's saying look I am going to establish my father's house, his dynasty, my dynasty, because I've got wisdom. But the establishment of David's dynasty was through grace. And we're going to see in this chapter a number of times where Solomon doesn't appreciate grace as his father David did, because he likes to say that all that God's doing is because of my wisdom. In other words, I possess intellectual truth. Remember, he wrote all these proverbs which God gave him the ability to write about all sorts of things, First, the Kings says, about trees and animals and all sorts of things. And he's saying, because I have all this truth, that is why I am wealthy. That is why I have uh, got long life. That is why my kingdom will be established. But as God had said, your house will be established through my grace. And so it points a contrast between the possession of wisdom as intellectual truth and grace. Now, this is not to say that wisdom and intellectual truth are irrelevant. Of course, they're not. But the point is that, that the lesson from Solomon is that by their very possession, you can so easily forget grace. And I think that's what's happened to our community. And it's what's happened, I think, probably to every single one of us. Verse 4. By knowledge, shall the chambers be filled with all precious and pleasant riches. Well, Solomon had so much wealth that he built treasure cities, store cities. It says that in one Kings, to store all these exotic things he had amassed for himself. Now, in those days, physical uh, wealth, as in gold, was not necessarily a great measure of wealth because it wasn't the cash economy that we have. Your wealth, your being a millionaire or a billionaire, was in terms of all sorts of interesting things you had, like elephant tusks brought from India and things like that, which Solomon had. So he says that his great wealth that he's got is because of his knowledge. Not so, Solomon. In 1 Kings 3.13, when Solomon has been asked what he wants, he says, I want wisdom, God says, well done, I will give you, I will give you wealth and long life, and all the things that a king could desire. So his wealth was a gift from God, and of course, certainly in Greek, the idea of gift and grace are, are, is connected. When you talk about a gift, you're talking about a grace. And so he says that I've got these treasure cities filled with precious and pleasant riches by my knowledge. But no, it was not that. It was because of the gift that God gave you. So again, he gets all muddled up here willfully, because he likes to think that what he knew was what had resulted in this blessing. And again, we see this problem so many times that we all in our weakness tend to think, well, I know God's truth, therefore I am justified. Not necessarily. Spirituality is is not about head knowledge. This is not to say, and I have to keep saying this, this is not to say that knowledge is irrelevant. Because how can you have a relationship with God unless you know Him in some sense? Verse 5. A wise man is strong. Yes, a man of knowledge increases strength. Is Samuel 3.1. David's house waxed stronger and stronger, but the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And he's alluding to that because his whole theme is the establishment of his kingdom in the face of opposition. And the, the relatives of Saul were still around, and the, the push to re establish Saul's dynasty was still a threat to Solomon, even in those days, at the start of his reign. Now, The point is that God made a sovereign choice of David and of Solomon. By sovereign choice, I mean that it was by grace. This is what Paul talks about in Romans, about the election or the calling of Israel. But it was not because they were good people. It's simply so that God has said, I choose you. Not the fellow next to you, not the girl over there, but I choose you. And we can easily think, oh yeah, well that must be because he saw something good in me. Not at all. You can't fathom, Paul is saying, why he chose you, but he does choose people. I mean, Paul says this. And why does Paul in Romans there start going on about calling? He doesn't just, you know, scroll down on his scroll and start writing something about uh, calling and predestination, just, well, like, I'll write to you Romans a bit about this now, because I feel like it. No, it's all in a context in Romans, and the context is the gospel of grace. And he's saying, you want a prime example, a parade example of grace? It's in the fact that God called you and called Israel regardless of works. Now get your head around that one. This is because simply I love you. And here he's saying that it is through wisdom and knowledge that you increase strength. No. Yes, the house of David increased in strength, waxed stronger and stronger, the good old... King James says to Samuel 3, verse 1, but by grace, because God decided to work with David, and out of all David's sons, he chose to work through Solomon. But that was by grace, just like he chose Abraham, by grace. Verse 6, in multitude of counsellors there is safety. Well, it's twice recorded that David had counsellors. One was his uncle Jonathan, and the other was Ahithophel. 1 Chronicles 27, verses 32 and 33. And he quite obviously had a number of others, for example, Nathan the prophet. So, Solomon is justifying his father's government, his way of governing. Oh, my dad had lots of counsellors. Well, yes, that means he was wise. Verse 13, my son, eat honey, because it's good, and the honeycomb, which is sweet to your taste. With all these allusions back to the life of David uh, and Saul, and um, indirect swipes at the, the house of Saul, I mean, this has got to be a reference to 1 Samuel 14.29, where Saul forbids his men to eat anything, and Jonathan, his son, goes and eats honey uh, and a honeycomb. 1 Samuel 14.29. As if he, he's saying, yeah, it's good to eat honey. You remember how Saul said, it's not good to eat honey, you can't eat anything. And Solomon ate, and his eyes were enlightened. And that's what he goes on to, to, to talk about here. And yet, the, the only other guy in the Bible who found honey uh, and a honeycomb and ate it was, uh, was Samson. And uh, I think the connection is purposeful, but I don't think it was consciously made by Solomon. In other words, you know, Solomon and Samson are pretty similar. They both fell by their obsession with foreign women. Okay, verse 15. Don't lay wait, O oh wicked man, against the dwelling of the righteous. Don't spoil his resting place. 1 Samuel nineteen eleven. Saul sent men to lie in wait around David's house. So, again, it's <clears throat> using God's wisdom, is all true as it stands, but a sideways swipe at the house of Saul. Verse 16, a just man falls seven times and rises up again, but the wicked falls once and for all. Maybe it's a justification of his father David. Oh, yeah, David messed up, my dad messed up, but you know what? He got up and went on again. So he turns uh, defeat into victory, rather like how Winston Churchill did at the, at the Battle of Dunkirk. Um, the, the, the Brits were all in defeat and, and couldn't, uh, couldn't save France, and they were, they were lifted off to safety, and the, the guys going around praising God, saying, oh, there you are, welcome home, boys, to a land fit for heroes. They've just been defeated, for goodness sake. Um, And they'd run away. So you can turn defeat into victory. This is what politicians do and leaders do in wartime. And this is exactly what Solomon is doing here about his own father. And, of course, Saul did fall, it is written, that Saul fell upon his own sword. And that leads on to verse 17. Rejoice not when your enemy falls you see verse 16 the wicked falls uh, into mischief into destruction but don't rejoice when your enemy falls and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles this is got to be David and Saul because when Saul died David wept and he did not he was very careful to not rejoice that Saul had fallen on his own sword so you see what I was saying how these proverbs are not just random bits of wisdom, they're all connected by a theme, and the verses that maybe you can't perceive a reference to the life of David and Saul and and David's opponents and Solomon's opponents, I think you probably could if we knew all the history that was going on in David's life, uh, that had gone on in David's life and in Solomon's situation we don't know all of it, and I suspect that the verses that we can't quite piece together with a David uh, allusion, do have probably such an allusion We just don't know enough of the background. Verse 20. There should be no reward to the evil man. The candle of the wicked shall be put out. Well, that word translated candle means a candle, but it also means a light. You've got the same word in 1 Kings 11.36, that David may have a light, a candle, always before God in Jerusalem. And what that meant was that, that David was to have a descendant sitting upon the throne now the candle of the wicked this is Saul shall be put out in other words no the house of Saul will not continue as the reigning dynasty in Israel it shall be put out but the candle of David shall continue so he's got all this in mind all the time and in this context of establishing his own rulership, he says in 21 my son, fear the Lord, Yahweh, and the King and don't get involved with those that are given to change. In other words, he's saying, I'm the King don't question me don't even think about change because if you do that, if you try to say that I am not the King and that God and myself are not somehow in parallel, fear the Lord and the King, uh, then uh, you don't really fear God Now, 23 and 24 is typical of a lot of the proverbs that criticise unjust judgment in places of of justice. It's not good to have respect of persons in judgment. He that says to the wicked, you're righteous, the people will curse. Well, one of Solomon's big contenders for the throne had been Absalom. And it seems to me that Absalom probably still had his supporters. And how did Absalom get his power? Well... Uh, 2 Samuel 15 verse 6 says that for some years Absalom judged Israel and he uh, gave people favors so that he bowed the hearts of the men of Israel. He gave them all sorts of favors in his judgment, which by implication was unjust. He justified the wicked and these guys uh, paid for that by supporting Absalom in his rebellion against David and Solomon. And that's why I think Solomon has so much to say about unjust judges. 27. Prepare your work first, and afterwards build your house. Well, these are the same words about David. Preparing for the temple. It's as if he's saying, what I'm doing, building the temple as my father prepared. You know, this is what you should all be doing. This is uh, an example of following wisdom. 28 don't be a witness against your neighbor without cause now same word David is called saul's neighbor you remember uh, God says twice one samuel fifteen twenty eight and twenty eight seventeen God says twice that he had taken the kingdom from Saul and given it to his neighbor David so don't be a witness against your neighbor without cause now this without cause this phrase runs so many times through the Psalms where David laments he's being persecuted by Saul without cause. If you want the references Psalm 35 verses 7 and 19, 69 verse 4 109 verse 3 119 verse 161 and there's many more. Specifically in the actual historical record 1 Samuel 9:19 9, verse 5 it says that uh, David was persecuted without cause. So within the context of David having just died and Solomon being given all this wisdom and writing all these proverbs without question he is justifying his father and he and himself as the son of David hundreds of times Solomon goes on about my father David David my father as David my father did as David my father said he is quite obsessed with his father and in justifying his father and in turning David's weaknesses into something to be gloried at. Oh yeah, the righteous falls seven times and rises up again. Then going on in 24 verse 29, say not I will do so to him as he has done to me, because I will render to the man according to his work. That's pretty well quoted. Revelation 22 verse 12. I come quickly to render to every man according to his works. Work shall be. In other words. God is the one who will render to a man according to his work so you should not say I will do to him as he has done to me now this is absolutely embodied in the attitude of David to Saul and to the house of Saul he did not do to the house of Saul as Saul had done to him he left judgment to God when he had the opportunity to kill Saul he says no I will not do this because God will sort this out now, all the way through then, Solomon is alluding back to David and is justifying David and particularly his own, Solomon's own uh, rulership and dynasty, on the basis of this is the wise thing to do. Now, as I say, all this is true that he says, but he's using God's truth just to simply reinforce his own personality type, to reinforce his own personal position. And we so easily do this. And it can be that you possess God's truth and you preserve it in terms of doctrine, etc. And yet, spiritually, in real spiritual terms, knock-knock, there's nobody at home. you probably experienced this in unfortunate incidents that you've been involved in with uh, some who are baptized and in Christ, the situation arises, and you just encounter some of their behaviour, attitudes, uh, uh, and you you just think, well, is there any spirituality here at all? Now you may say that's judgmental, but I don't. You know, we can't say such a person will not be in the kingdom, but we're also not supposed to check our brain in at the door. We walk into a, into a an ecclesial hall or a church hall or whatever. We walk around this world with our our eyes open, right? And it's just clear that this is a problem, shall we say. It's a problem for all of us. Let us be clear that the the mere possession of God's truth can lead you to, as with Solomon, to think that grace, therefore, doesn't matter, that it's by knowledge and wisdom that I'm where I am. And it can also lead you to use all that truth as a simple justification for yourself. Letting out, venting your natural anger, maybe, against somebody who interprets the Bible somewhat differently to you, even on quite a small point. Prophecy, for example. Oh, I have this view of prophecy. I follow John Thomas. And you follow Harry Whittaker, or whoever it might be. You're a futurist. And, oh, bang, you know, all the bad language, F-words, and the rest of it. Oh, this is righteous anger, you know. That's not. It's even if you're right. Uh, and your continuous historic view, let's say, is correct, and the futurist view is, is wrong. Okay. Okay. But you don't use your possession of truth to simply be an outlet for your own anger. Now, this happens so often. And it's not just with the outlet of anger. Uh, one can do all sorts of things for God, for men. It can be standing up, speaking uh, off the podium. Uh, it can be. Preaching, getting people as really sort of uh, really grateful to you for opening their eyes about something or other. It can be all kinds of ministering that you do, and we're doing it not for us, not, not for, for, for God, but actually for ourselves. And this is, I think, the great lesson of Solomon. But, of course, as I keep saying, all this is true as it stands. And one of those things that is very true is what we read in verse 11 and 12. If you forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death, and those that are ready to be slain, if you say, Behold, we knew it not, does not he that ponders the heart consider it? And he that keeps your soul, does not he know it? And shall not he render to every man according to his works? What he's saying then is that the sin of omission is going to be judged. And you see how the Bible pierces right inside the, the, the most innermost self-talk of human beings. Verse 12, if you say, behold, we knew it not, does not he that ponders the heart consider it? Where and to whom do you say, ah, oh, we didn't know? You say it to yourself in your own heart, because he goes on to say, if you say, behold, we knew it not. Well, he who looks inside your heart considers what you're saying so he's saying and this is we're cutting now to the very essence of of spirituality and spiritual mindedness god is looking at your self-talk and he's considering what you're saying and he who keeps you alive keeps your soul he who gives you breath every every second he knows this and he will render to every man according to his works you see what's being said. The internal thought that, oh, yeah, I didn't didn't notice it. Oh, really? Yeah, no, I don't know about that. Uh, that person in need, that brother who needs comfort at this time, that sister who needs an email, that uh, person who, who's clearly in need. No. Oh, uh, uh, yeah, well, oh, really, they've got a problem? Sure, you know they've got a problem. But you didn't do it because you told yourself, well, I didn't I didn't know. Of course you know. Just open your eyes and you see all that need. But God is looking into our hearts and pondering. He's pondering our actions. And in this case, our sin of omission. And it's really easy to think that it's all about commission. Don't do this. Don't do that. You should do this. You should do that. Yeah but it's actually omission here which is, what we're told that that will be judged according to our works so the fact that you simply walked on by and said, ah yeah, look, I just don't get involved in those kind of things I find it a bit distressing when there's, for example, argument in the church ecclesial politics ah yeah, I don't get involved Uh, I'm sort of out of there look, (laughs) you can't just walk on by it's not that we you know, get involved just for the sake of getting involved in explosive situations, but if we are rightly motivated, then of course this is what we're called to do. As has so often been said, the need is the call. The need is the call. And God is pondering your heart. And to just shrug in your heart and walk on by, God ponders that and will judge you according to your works. In other words, your Momentary shrugging inside yourself and saying, Oh, yeah, yeah, she was always a difficult so and so, I knew her mother, uh, and, you know, that kind of thing. That's a work, and he who ponders your heart is going to take that seriously with you at the day of judgment. Because, as I said earlier, Revelation 22, verse 12, the Lord comes suddenly to judge every man according as his work shall be.